wonder if you ever stop and wonder what the future might hold. If you ever take a little bit to daydream about what the future might look like. I guess if you've played the Powerball over the last couple of weeks, you probably spent a lot of time daydreaming about what the future could possibly hold. And as far as I know, no one in our congregation won the lottery. So I'm sorry and serves you right. Okay? I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Kidding. Kind of. Um, no, it is, it's fun to, to, to step back and dream about what, what the future is going to be like. One of the, probably the most iconic uh, ways that this happened, at least in the last uh, 30, 40 years or so, happened in Back to the Future Part 2. Now, now I'm showing my age because this is, man, when I was a kid, Back to the Future was it. It was, it was awesome. And uh, Back to the Future Part 2, the Back to the Future franchise take place in 1985. And so the directors for Part 2 kind of took a, a bit of their imagination and, and dreamed what life might look like 30 years down the road. And the target date was October 21st, 2015. It's where Marty McFly and Doc Brown take their flying DeLorean into the future. They land in October, on October 21st, 2015. And it was fun to see the way that they imagined things would look like in 2015 with hoverboards. Now, there's a company who recently came out with something they call a hoverboard. It is not a hoverboard. It has wheels. It does not hover across the, the, the ground like we were promised, okay? Now, I'm a little, I'm a little upset because I was promised a lot of things as a kid that I would see by 2015. The hoverboard was the first. The one I was most looking forward to was, was this next one here, the flying cars, right? We're going to have to drive, or as Doc Brown said, roads. Where we're going, we don't need roads. The promise of no more traffic jams. You just fly through the air in your flying car. Now, I've read that they are developing the technology to give us flying cars, but obviously they're not mass-produced and not everywhere like we were promised. Maybe we shouldn't be too disappointed this next one didn't come about. Jaws 19 in 3D, directed by, I don't know if you can see that, directed by Max Spielberg. Okay? Um, now, the Jaws franchise kind of died away after the debacle that was Jaws the Revenge, which was made in 3D and was awful. I mean, it was terrible. Looks like something that should be on the, one of those cheesy movies you see on the, on the sci-fi channel. Um, and so that, that kind of killed the, the Jaws series. It didn't make it quite to Jaws 19. Um, and then this last one, the most outlandish prediction of all, that the Cubs would finally win the World Series in 2015. Now, now that was dreaming. Now if, you, now, if you were paying attention in October to the baseball world, they got close. It started, I mean, and, and Cubs fans... Anytime there's a chance, they just, they lose their minds because they, they don't know how to handle winning, right? Because th there hasn't been a whole lot of that in their history. So, like, they made it to the, to the National League Championship Series, which was one step away from, from the World Series, and, and Cubs fans are going berserk, thinking, oh, you know, they, the, these guys uh, promised it, and now it's going to happen, and it didn't. They, they ended up falling apart in true Cubs fashion. So, hope there are no Cubs fans in the building. I, 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 as a Rangers fan, I share some 
I share some, some pain with you. But, um, so we were, we were promised all these things, right? That this imagination of what the future might be like. And as a, as a kid, I mean, think back, to, think back to 30 years ago, 1985. It wasn't outside the realm of possibility that we would see things like flying cars. And yet, 30 years came and went in a hurry, didn't it? I, of course, I, I'll, I'll, I'll pony up. I was two years old in 1985, okay? So I know to some of you that either makes you, me feel really old or to the rest of you makes, makes me seem like a kid. Um, but, but, but it's always fun to look into the future and think about what things might be like. And so this morning, as we, as we continue this series of who we are as a local church, this morning we look at how we are the presence of the future. Now, I'm not talking about some future like was presented in Back to the Future, where we look forward and think about what it would be like to, to fly from here to Amarillo in our own personal car. Not talking about what it, what it might look like to have hoverboards and, and rather than having to use, you know, old crummy skateboards, you just hover along the ground. Rather, I'm, we're talking about the kingdom of God. And on that day, finally, when Christ Jesus comes and breaks open the sky and calls his people to himself, when the kingdom of God is finally ushered in here once for all, what will that look like and how do we right now have an opportunity to share in some of that together and to show the world what the, what the kingdom of God looks like. So if you have your copy of scripture, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. I, I believe I flipped these on the back of the outline. So we're going to start in Colossians chapter 3. And as you're turning there, uh, I have this quote from, uh, from Jeff Ashley, who's the group's pastor at the Village Church in, in uh, Dallas, Texas. And he says this, we are the presence of of the future, a present colony of heaven to be fully populated at the consummation of our marriage to the bridegroom. And because this future world is, come, is soon coming, its beauty penetrates and permeates the present as it casts a foreshadow of the future back into the present. Now, I could never say that the way that he just said it, so that's why I just copied it and put it on here. But what he's saying is this, we have the opportunity to experience a little bit, a shadow of what the coming kingdom of God and all its glory will be like. We're going to look at three ways that, that we are right now the presence of the future and how we can experience shadows, not, not the full-blown experience of the kingdom of God fully realized, but, but shadows here and there. We're going to start in Colossians chapter 3. So if you will, stand with me as we read the word of God together this morning. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the opportunity to gather to look at this great passage, these passages that we'll look at this morning. As we examine what it means to be the presence of the future, a colony of heaven here on earth. So show us this morning what it means to live 
as citizens of ultimately your kingdom, not any nation or kingdom here on earth. Pray this morning you'll show us how to do that day in and day out. We ask all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You can have a seat. So, so very quickly, um, we've talked about how the kingdom of God, we've said this before, it's already and not yet. And we, we talk about that tension, how uh, Christ bought it, he paid for it, it is, it's a reality, and we wait for it to, to be fully realized here on earth when, when he comes back. And the illustration I kind of used, and it's not perfect, so don't, don't dismantle it too much because it does, it does fall apart eventually, but the, the illustration I've used is, is of ordering a package from, from somewhere like Amazon and waiting for it to arrive. You've bought it. As soon as it ships, it's paid for. They charge your card. And so it's yours, right? You've paid for it. It's, it's yours. You're just waiting for it to arrive at your doorstep. That's kind of where we are right now in the kingdom of God. Christ bought it. He paid for it. It's ours. And we're waiting for it to, to fully arrive, to, to, for its full presence to be known when, when, when life here as we know it is over or when, as I said earlier, Christ breaks open the sky and, and comes back. And so in the, middle, we, in, in the meantime, we live with this tension because we know this is a reality and yet we don't experience it on a, on a daily basis. But we can catch shadows of it. And one of the ways we do that is that we see here in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, is that we set our minds on future glory. We set our minds on future glory. Um, now, in case you haven't noticed, there's a lot of things in our world in the grand scheme of things, if, if we consider the future glory, if we consider all of eternity, there are a lot of things in this life that don't matter all that much. And yet, we're pretty easily distracted by those things. Paychecks, yes? Never met anybody who hates payday. Never met a soul who says, man, I hate getting paid. Right? No, we look for that paycheck. In fact, if you're like most Americans, you look at the bank account... And you look at when payday is, and you're going, okay, how do I make this number stretch to this date, right? And we look forward to that. Now, in, all of you, in, in the grand scheme of eternity, your paycheck really isn't going to matter all that much, but it matters now. We get distracted by temporal things. So what Paul here is calling us to do in Colossians 3 is to take our minds off of the present and begin to look forward to the future. Now, again, let me caution, there's a tension here. Because if we're not careful, if we take this too far, as one pastor put it, you'll become so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. You, you, your, your mind will be so kind of focused on the things of God that you just, you, you neglect things here on earth. And so what do we do then? Well, we want to gain eternal perspective on things. Because unlike some religions that teach that everything material is evil and we should, we should try to put everything that's material away, we believe, in fact, that, that these things can be used to further the kingdom of God. And so what we need is an eternal perspective that, that puts all of our material things in, in, in place. For instance, 
There's nothing wrong with money in and of itself. It's not bad. People misquote uh, 1 Timothy all the time and say money is the root of all evil. That's not what it says. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. Money is a tool. It's, it's amoral. It's not inherently good or evil, but it can be used for both. So if we have an eternal perspective, if we have set our mind on the things that are above, we suddenly gain this perspective about how money is to be used in our own lives and how we can use it to further the kingdom of God. There is a reality, a, a, a psychological reality, that we seek the things that we treasure the most. Those things that we most treasure, those things that we most desire, are the things that we'll pursue. And so again, if, if, if a bottom line or a paycheck is, is the thing that you desire most, you're going to pursue that, um, resolve to do whatever it takes to, to gain as much wealth, to, get, to gain as much money as possible. But, but look here at this, uh, Psalm 63. The, the psalmist here talks about the thing that, that is his greatest treasure. It says this, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now think just for a minute. We know what a land looks like when there is no water. We're painfully familiar with that over the past several years, right? In how in June, in July, the, the landscape looks like it's December. And yet, isn't it amazing how little rain it makes to, take, to, to make a big difference in the landscape? Just a little bit of rain and, and things will start greening up. And the psalmist says, I long for God. I seek after God as a dry and weary land where there is no water. So look at verse 2. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. Psalmist said this is the thing that he longs for, the thing that he treasures the most, the thing that he seeks after is to know God. To, um, he says, my lips praise you. Your love is better than life. So if you seek after God earnestly, there will be a marked change in your life. And the way we do that is by setting our gaze upon him. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So as I said, this doesn't mean that we just ignore our family, our friends, our bills, all that. It means that we see them in perspective and we focus more on the things of God. And as we do, we'll gain perspective on how to love our friends, love our family, and steward the resources that God has given us better. So that's, that's the first principle, that we are to set our minds on the things above. The second one is this. We, to, we need to understand that we are a colony of heaven. Turn back just a couple of pages from where you are to Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 17. We are a colony of heaven. Now, we don't live in a colonial culture today. That's, that's not the way that, that we live. But as you well know, if you paid attention at all in, in U.S. history, you know that our nation began as 
uh, 13 British colonies. Now, now here's the interesting thing about, about the way that colonialism works. These, these people who came over, the first settlers in, in what we now know as the United States, were citizens of the British Empire, citizens of the United Kingdom. Settling in a land that was not their own. So they live in this strange place, still being citizens of somewhere else. And this is the idea when we say we are a colony of heaven. Because we are here, even though this is not our home. We're citizens, if you've accepted Christ, we are citizens of heaven. Living here for a time. So look with me at uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now consider really quickly what he's saying here. Paul was a Roman citizen. Rome was probably, it can be argued that Rome was the greatest empire, the greatest civilization that the world has ever seen. Rome ruled the, the known world. Basically, every, everything that, that people knew, they ruled that for about 1,200 years. The United States has been here for, uh, let's see, 1776, isn't it? So what's that? 240 years. Is that right? Did I just do my math right? Sure. Let's go with that. 240 years, okay? Rome was around for like 1,200 years. An empire unlike anything that had been seen before, and most likely, given the world today, unlike anything we're going to see again. And as a Roman citizen, Paul was afforded certain rights and privileges that, that non-citizens simply didn't have. Now, the way this played out in his own ministry, he was able to preach the gospel and had a great freedom in doing so that his, his friends and partners in the, in the gospel simply didn't have. And even though he was ultimately arrested and history tells us beheaded for preaching the gospel, he was able to continue preaching the gospel and traveling far longer because of his Roman citizenship. His ministry was extended far beyond what, what many of his friends and partners in the gospel were simply because he had that, anytime he was arrested, he could just claim that Roman citizenship and, and the, his captors were very limited in what they could do to him. So understand for a minute what he's saying here. My true citizenship is not in Rome. My true citizenship is in heaven. Jesus Christ is my Lord, which means Caesar is not. Now, in the Roman world, what he just said here, that our citizenship is in heaven, would have been considered borderline, if not outright, treasonous. To declare that someone else is Lord besides Caesar, who considered himself a god, would have been quite a claim. 
and wouldn't have been taken very well by those in the Roman government. But he recognized that his ultimate allegiance was not to Rome, but to Christ, because he was ultimately not a citizen of Rome. He was a citizen of heaven. Now, Vance Havner, great evangelist from the last century, said this, If you are a Christian, you are not a citizen of this world trying to get to heaven. You are a citizen of heaven making your way through this world. So this means that when the values of our neighborhood and even when the values of our nation contradict the values of heaven, we must remember where our true citizenship lies. That as blessed as we are to live in this great nation, this is ultimately not where my citizenship and your citizenship lies. Our ultimate allegiance is not to the White House or to a flag. Our ultimate allegiance is to the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. Now, we should seek to have the values of heaven played out in our world. That, that's part of what it means to be a citizen of heaven, right? We, we, want to, we want to share the truth of what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. We want to, we want to invite others to come in. But, but y'all, if you're paying attention to the world around us, there's a conflict in value systems. And that doesn't mean that we simply just say, well, there's nothing we can do about it. Go along with the culture. Because our ultimate citizenship is not here. It's in heaven. And we're called to live accordingly as citizens of heaven. Here's the third thing. We are the bride of Christ. Flip to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. It's a great passage. Now, now guys, men, don't, don't lose me here, okay? Uh, I, know, I know it's not popular to, among men to be talking about the bride of Christ, but, but run with me here real quick, because this is how the Bible refers to those of us who are in Christ Jesus, as the bride of Christ. Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. Verse 6 says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Verse 9. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Now think with me just for a minute about all that goes into planning a wedding. Maybe you've just come through a wedding for a, for a child, for a grandchild. And so maybe you're still recovering from that process. But, but weddings these days, I, I don't know if you guys watch this. I don't. Michelle watches it, so sometimes I have to pay attention. Say yes to the dress. People, these, these young ladies who will travel to New York or Atlanta from sometimes all over the world and will spend thousands of dollars on a wedding dress. 
to, uh, what was it, Kleinfeld's, right, in, in New York City. And they'll walk in, and they'll have their mom and their best friend and their sisters and their best friend's sisters and some distant cousin that they don't even know, but they invited us to come along for the party. And they'll walk in, and, and one of the representatives from Kleinfeld's will say, okay, so what's your budget? Oh, I have $10,000 budgeted for a dress. I don't even understand what that means, but, it, okay, go with me here. And then, so then, these folks at Kleinfeld's are smart, right? So, so they'll bring out a dress that's, that's usually, you know, just kind of show off every now and then. They'll bring out a dress that's twelve, thirteen thousand dollars $13,000. And ultimately, and so often, that's the one the girl falls in love with, right? Because, of course, because it costs more. And it's amazing to me the ones who will say, oh, it's no big deal. Daddy will pay for it. Haley, daddy's not paying. She's not even paying attention. <laughs> Good. She didn't hear that. Okay. So, but think about all the planning, months of preparation, finding the right dresses, the right place settings, the right flowers, the right cakes, the right venue, not just for the wedding, but for the reception. Sometimes not just one dress, but there'll be a dress for the wedding itself and then a dress for the reception. <laughs> right. Like, I don't know, right? My daughter's six, and I'm already like breaking out into hives here. I mean, this is, in, this is unbelievable. Months of preparation for a ceremony that usually lasts somewhere around half an hour. But there's so much preparation and anticipation that leads up to that one moment. So, running with that analogy for a minute... If we are the bride of Christ, what are we doing in preparation for the great marriage of Christ Almighty to his church? Two, two things, really quickly. These are not in your notes. You're welcome to jot them down. Two, things that, two very basic things that we should be doing in preparation for that day. First is simply this evangelism. Look at verse 9 says, and the angel said to me, write, uh, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Maybe you remember in Luke chapter 14, Jesus tells the parable of a great banquet. And in this, par in this parable, there's a very powerful man who's throwing a banquet. He invites all of his affluent friends and neighbors, and one by one, they begin to give excuses why they can't come. And his guest list of the, the, the richest and most powerful people in his town quickly evaporates. And so he tells one of his servants, I've prepared this great feast. I want you to go out, tells them to the highways and the byways. Find whoever you can. I want you to bring them in to this banquet. Now, these are folks who probably never thought in a million years that they would be invited to such a great banquet. And yet, here they are because of the graciousness of the host. They find themselves at this great banquet table. And the same is true for us. We don't deserve to be at God's great banquet table. And yet, he has invited us in from the highways and the byways, he, this message went out throughout the known world. 
people were invited to come in to the kingdom of God. And because we don't deserve to be there, because it's a gift of God's grace that he has invited us into his kingdom, we're called to share that. The very last words Jesus told his disciples before he was taken up into heaven, make disciples of all nations. Take this message everywhere. The book of Acts tells us how the early disciples took this message everywhere throughout the known world in a matter of just a few short years. The gospel spread from about 120 people localized in Jerusalem around the known world. We are to invite others in. There's a second thing that we need to do in preparation as well. Those are good works. Now let me be very clear. I hope that over the last three and a half years I've made it abundantly clear we're not saved by our good works. Rather, our good works give evidence to the salvation that, is, that God is working in and through us. Look at verse 8. It says, It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the, the bride of Christ, the church, is clothed in this bright linen, these righteous deeds. The way we live matters. The things that we say, the things that we do matter. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 2.15. It says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are, being perish- who are perishing. Now, aromas are a really funny thing. Because aromas can elicit really strong emotions in you, right? So some aromas can make you happy. Some aromas can make you very unhappy. Some aromas can literally make you sick to your stomach. Aromas can bring back memories. Aromas are so powerful. And so Paul here says we are to be the aroma of Christ in the world. We are called literally right here, to smell like Christ to the world around us, to our neighbors, to our family, to those who are saved, those who are being saved, other believers, and those who are perishing, those who haven't yet accepted the gospel. We have the aroma of Christ. We're to smell like Christ. What a great analogy. So as we wrap up here, remember this. We are the presence of the future. Not some made-up sci-fi fantasy future, but a reality of the kingdom of God that is coming into the world. We are the presence of that future, a colony of heaven right here on earth. Now we can see this happen. We can experience this future, right here in the present, as we set our minds on the future glory, as we remind ourselves that we are ultimately not citizens here, but citizens of heaven. And as we prepare ourselves, as a bride prepares for her wedding day, a pure, holy, blameless people, 
doing good work, seeking to live the way Christ has commanded us to live, not in order that we might gain salvation, but because he has granted that to us if you have accepted the free gift of salvation. And finally, we are to live. We can experience that presence, the, the, the present future, as we live as the aroma of Christ in the world. In order that folks might smell Jesus when they're around us. One of the best ways I ever heard this illustrated was by a guy who's preaching to a, a, a convention of youth ministers, conference of youth ministers. First question that he asked, he said, what are you oozing? What are you oozing? I love that. If people are around you, what, what comes out? Because if we're filled with Christ, the Bible says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So we're putting off something. Folks are smelling something when they're around you. Are they smelling Christ or are they smelling just more of what the world has to offer? The praise team comes. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the great opportunity to be here to look at this great, these great passages to see what it means to be, uh, to be able to bring the, the future kingdom of God into the present, to see shadows of it right here among us. Reminded us that our citizenship ultimately not, does not lie here in the United States. It doesn't even lie here in our identity as human beings. It, it lies as citizens of heaven. Help us never forget where our ultimate allegiance must be. May we be the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved, to our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially as we gather together in a local church. May we stir one another on to love and good works. May we be the aroma of Christ to those who are perishing, those who don't yet know you as Lord and Savior. May our words, our actions, the way that we live our lives be a pleasing aroma to them of who you are. Move in these next short moments. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.